Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about what you should know about constipation, including what to know about over-the-counter laxatives. Now, Constipation is not a glamorous topic, often considered not suitable for polite company, and it's actually one of those things that people are often a little bit embarrassed to mention to their doctors or to other people, which is understandable. But it's actually a very important issue, especially when it comes to older adults, and it's an issue that uh, not only do I ask my older patients about routinely, but it's actually something that's pretty common for me to Um, intervene, meaning ask more questions about it, and then work with the person to try to make things better. So why do I pay so much attention to this? Well, as anybody who has experienced occasional or worse yet chronic constipation knows, it can really put a damper on quality of life and well-being. It's uncomfortable often, or can even be uh, worse than uncomfortable. And it can sometimes cause more substantial problems in older people. So for instance, a particularly bad episode of constipation can cause severe abdominal pain, which can lead to emergency room visits. I've had to send people sometimes to the emergency room because things have gone so bad. And certainly when we as uh, medical residents work there, we see people come in with this problem. Also, uh, frequent straining or constipation can um, lead to or worsen hemorrhoids, and those can bleed or be painful. And all this discomfort is actually really important in geriatrics because it can be a discomfort and a trigger that triggers difficult behavior in people who have Alzheimer's or another dementia. So if you're generally somebody who is mentally well, then you kind of manage the discomfort or pain of your constipation. But if you're someone who has become cognitively impaired, then that discomfort can just make you more irritable and reactive. And that can be a big problem for families or for facilities when an older adult is residing there. And uh, also kind of paradoxically, constipation can even lead to fecal incontinence or accidents, which can be distressing for, for everybody involved. And last but not least, there's certainly people who will avoid taking needed medication, especially pain medication, because they're afraid of the constipation or they've had it and they don't want it to become worse. So... These are all reasons that we in geriatrics take constipation pretty seriously. And the thing is, it actually usually is possible to help older adults effectively manage or prevent this problem. And this helps maintain well-being and quality of life. And then, as I was mentioning, can improve difficult behaviors that might be related to dementia. But there's a catch. And the catch is that since constipation is so sort of common and can also be treated with over-the-counter medications, it seems to me that it often has been overlooked by other physicians. They may be more focused on what they consider more, quote-unquote, serious health issues. And it's true that a lot of older people do have some quite serious health issues that require attention too. Since many laxatives are available over-the-counter, older people themselves may assume that this is something they should be able to handle on their own, or perhaps clinicians assume that people will just go and buy a laxative at the drugstore if they need it. But I'm not a fan of this hands-off approach. There are several quite useful laxatives available over-the-counter, but I've found that the average person just doesn't know enough to correctly choose among them. And although in geriatrics, we do often end up recommending or prescribing laxatives, many of which are available over the counter, it's actually quite important to start with the basics, which is true for almost any health problem or discomfort. Uh, You want to start by thinking through what might be causing or worsening the problem before you move to trying to treat it. So for instance, 
many commonly taken medications can make constipation worse. So in geriatrics, we usually make an attempt to identify those and then perhaps deprescribe them. So again, deprescribing, which we talked about in episode 46, means reducing or stopping medications that may not be beneficial or may be causing harm or just don't have enough benefit to be worth the side effects or risks that they come with. And the goal of deprescribing is to maintain or improve quality of life. In short, if you're an older adult or if you're helping an older person manage health issues, it's worthwhile to learn the basics of how constipation in older people should be evaluated and managed. And this way, you'll be better equipped to get help from your health providers. And if it seems advisable, you'll be better equipped to choose among over-the-counter laxative options because you'll understand just how they work, how they differ from each other, and what are some sort of useful guidelines on selecting them. So here's what I'll cover in the rest of this podcast episode. And this episode is based on a comprehensive article that I published recently on the website. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. So don't feel like you need to take notes. Everything is in the article. And what I'll cover in the rest of the episode is first, common signs and symptoms of constipation, just so that we can all be on the same page about what the term means. I'll talk about what are the common causes of constipation in older adults. I'll tell you about the most common medications that can cause or worsen constipation. So those would be the ones to kind of review with your clinician if constipation has been an issue. I'll go over the kind of quote unquote best practice guidelines on how constipation should be evaluated and treated. That's largely based on some guidelines published by the American Society for Gastroenterology a few years ago. And then very important, there's a laxative myth that lots of people believe that you shouldn't believe. I'm going to tell you about that. And then I'm going to tell you about three types of over-the-counter laxatives that work and how they work. And also one commonly used one that does not work very well and may not be worth your time taking. And then I'll finish with a summary of um, my approach to constipation in older adults and some key takeaways for, for you. So common signs and symptoms of constipation. What exactly does it mean to be constipated? In general, we can diagnose constipation when people experience two or more of the following signs related to at least a quarter of their bowel movements. And those signs are straining, hard or lumpy stools, a sense of what we call, quote unquote, incomplete evacuation, which basically means that you feel like maybe not everything quite got out. Also, the need for, quote unquote, manual maneuvers, uh, which is when people sometimes find themselves having to use a finger or massage things down there a little bit to help things out. And then the final sign that I want to mention is fewer than three bowel movements per week. So people often ask me, well, what's considered normal or ideal when it comes to bowel movements? You know, there is some evidence that suggests that uh, it's probably ideal to have one every day. In cultures where people eat a lot of vegetables, a lot of fiber, they tend to have at least one every day, if not more. We, of course, you know, on a what's called a Western diet, tend to sometimes eat less vegetables and less fiber. And generally, it's considered acceptable to have them every two to three days, provided that they aren't hard, painful, difficult to pass, or require straining, or some of those other sort of signs that I mentioned. Now, if you want a little assistance in kind of um, describing what a stool looks like, in uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but there's something called the Bristol Stool Scale, which is a visual guide that kind of classifies stools in terms of their consistency. So I'll post a link there. That can be kind of handy if you're logging things. And type four is often considered the ideal, and that would be formed but soft. So as you probably know, constipation is not just an issue for older adults. It's actually pretty common in the general population, also in certain children, but it does tend to become more common as people get older. And experts estimate that over 65% of people over age 65 experience constipation with straining being an especially common uh, symptom. And then there are some other symptoms that also might be caused by constipation in older adults. So in geriatrics, we're alert to those too. Those include things like a feeling of fullness, bloating, pain in the belly, can even interfere with appetite in some people. 
And then, as I mentioned earlier, although most older adults will admit to symptoms of constipation if you ask them, people with Alzheimer's or other dementias uh, may be unable to remember or relay these symptoms. And instead, they just might act out or become more irritable when they're constipated. So for us, when a family or a facility reports that somebody with dementia is having difficult behaviors, we do try to ask and find out how often are they having a bowel movement? Does it seem difficult to pass? And we try to gather that information to determine whether some constipation might be a factor contributing to that person's irritability or reactivity. Now, there's an additional um, kind of condition which is related to uh, more prolonged or severe constipation. It can be pretty serious, and it's called fecal impaction. This basically means having a hard mass of stool stuck in the rectum or lower colon, and it happens because the longer that stool remains in the colon, the drier it tends to get, which makes it harder to pass. Impaction tends to be pretty uncomfortable, and that's often the cause of these crises of full-on belly pain that sometimes require people to go to the emergency room. Impaction can also cause diarrhea or fecal incontinence. Not to bring up unpleasant things to think about, but it can basically cause um, additional stool to leak around the blockage. So once somebody is impacted, it can be pretty hard to get them moving with just oral laxatives. And these can even potentially make things worse. They create more sort of pressure from above against the blockage. So often our goal in managing and addressing and managing someone's constipation symptoms is to prevent or reduce incidences of impaction. Because once you're at that point, you kind of need to take another approach. And usually that involves treatments from what we might call below to soften up and break up the lump, such as enemas. There are also suppositories that can help. And, uh, and some people do end up having to go to the emergency room or urgent care to sort of basically have someone else get their hands dirty and, and help things come out. And it should be done because if they're, if they're blocked up, that, that needs to be resolved. And it is our job as healthcare professionals to help people with that. Those are the symptoms and those are some of the problems that can be associated. So what causes this in older adults? Well, like many problems that affect older adults, constipation is often multifactorial or due to multiple causes and risk factors. And before I go into what they are, I think it can be helpful to review uh, what the body needs to do to have a normal bowel movement. So basically, the basics of a normal bowel movement is that the colon in your belly is there to, um, to receive the, uh, what's been digested by your small intestine, to recover a lot of the water, to store things and kind of move it along until you're ready to evacuate them. So to have a normal bowel movement, your colon has to, uh, your body has to first be able to move that fecal material through the colon without too much delay. And the reason why you don't want it to take too long and have too much delay is because stool does tend to get drier and harder the longer it stays in the colon. And then the second part of having a normal bowel movement is that the body eventually has to coordinate what we call a defecation response. So there is this whole process of uh, at the end when somebody sits on the toilet or needs to go of things moving down to the very bottom of the gastrointestinal tract, to the rectum and anus, and of the nerves coordinating to open what should be opened, move things out, and close up again. And so this requires properly working nerves, both to feel the stool coming down into the rectum and anus, and to direct the muscles in the area. And then you need properly working muscles in that area. And that area is often called the pelvic floor. So those muscles need to work properly to get everything to move out the way it should. Unsurprisingly, as people get older, it becomes increasingly common for them to develop difficulties with one or both of those physical processes. So either difficulties with moving the material through the colon in a timely enough fashion or with coordinating uh, the actual evacuation moment. So what causes these problems? Well, Again, it can often be multiple things at once, but some common things that come up are, you know, one, medication side effects, and I'll talk more about which medications in a moment. Insufficient dietary fiber can contribute. You need enough fiber and bulk in there for the colon to have something to kind of 
move along. Of course, if you have too much bulk, that can be hard to move. But if you have not enough, that's a problem too. So dietary fiber does help provide that bulk and can also help retain water, enough water in the stool. For some people, being chronically a little dehydrated might make constipation worse. Constipation can also be caused or worsened by electrolyte imbalances, including abnormal levels of blood calcium, potassium, magnesium. That's partly because those electrolytes tend to be quite involved with the way one's muscles work in the body, including the, they're called smooth muscles that are in the gut. And those muscles aren't usually under our voluntary control. Constipation can also be caused by endocrine disorders, including hypothyroidism. That's kind of a classic symptom for hypothyroidism is that your gut slows down a lot. Now, there are, of course, lots of other reasons why you might be constipated or have a slow gut. So you shouldn't assume it's hypothyroidism, but it is a a known effect of having not enough thyroid hormone present in the body. You can also have slow transit due to chronic nerve dysfunction. So the gut actually has an incredible amount of uh, nerves that are innervating it and coordinating it. It's been referred to as a second brain by some researchers. And um, those nerves and the way they work together can be damaged by certain neurological conditions such as Parkinson's disease, or they can be damaged by other conditions that eventually damage the nerves such as diabetes. Other causes of constipation include irritable bowel syndrome. There is a variant that involves frequent constipation. There's also pelvic floor dysfunction. So that's a broad category referring to all kinds of problems related to how your um, those muscles, again, in the pelvic floor. So those are the muscles that are around the, the anus and kind of between your thighs. So women especially sometimes experience damage to those muscles due to childbirth, but there can be other reasons to have dysfunctions down there. And then the last factor I'll mention right now is something we call in healthcare mechanical obstruction. So this means that the colon or rectum or their proper function is impaired by some kind of mass or lump or narrowing or another physical factor. This can be caused by a tumor sometimes. But there are also non-cancerous reasons that a person can develop a mechanical obstruction affecting the bowels. So those are basically some of the things that if you mention constipation to a clinician, those are some of the things that they might think about or consider as possible causes. And later I'll talk about what the evaluation should include. And usually it's basically designed to help clinicians gravitate towards some of those or perhaps rule them out. Now, earlier I mentioned that several commonly used medications are associated with constipation and that often in geriatrics we consider deprescribing them. So what are they? So the main one you should know about is one of our favorite bugaboos in geriatrics. It's the anticholinergic medications. So again, that's that broad class of medications that affect the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. So acetylcholine is in your brain and helps you with your thinking, and that is why blocking it tends to cause drowsiness and confusion and actually has been associated with developing dementia such as Alzheimer's. But also acetylcholine is a key neurotransmitter in your gut. And so when you take an anticholinergic medication, not only do people tend to get drowsier, but they also tend to experience some slowing of the gut and some constipation. They can also experience dry mouth. That's a common side effect. So I'll post a link to an article that describes several commonly used types of anticholinergics, but basically this group includes sedating antihistamines such as Benadryl, and it's also sedating antihistamines that are in over-the-counter sleep medications or over-the-counter nighttime painkillers or nighttime cough and cold medications. And then there are a variety of other commonly used medications that are anticholinergic as well. So that's yet another reason to uh, minimize use of anticholinergics if you can. Another type of medication that definitely causes or worsens constipation is opiate painkillers. So that means medications such as um, codeine, hydrocodone, which is in Vicodin, uh, morphine, oxycodone, basically those stronger painkillers. They are quite constipating, and that is a side effect that the body does not developed tolerance to. Now, we can work around it by providing certain other types of laxatives or other 
medications. So the constipation side effect should not be a reason to not use those medications. But of course, you want to use those medications when it's indicated and carefully, especially right now as we're in the midst of a national crisis related to overuse of these painkillers. But in some cases, they are justified and necessary. A few other types of medication that can also cause or worsen constipation would include diuretic type medications, which people sometimes take for blood pressure or kidney conditions, calcium supplements. Some of the most commonly forms of calcium supplementation are actually constipating, and also iron supplements can be constipating. So again, you want to be asking yourself, do I really need to take this supplement? Because I have come across lots of people who are taking iron who didn't uh, strictly need it any longer, and other people who are taking calcium supplements and didn't realize that it was constipating and that maybe they could get their calcium intake in other ways. So now that we've gone over what causes constipation often in older adults and some of the medications that are associated with it, uh, let me tell you now what's recommended in terms of how clinicians should evaluate constipation in an older person. And again, evaluation is important because the right treatment depends on having first done a little bit of investigating into what appears to be the main causes of constipation in a person. So basically, the evaluation should start with the health provider asking for more information regarding the symptoms, including how long they've been going on, as well as the frequency and consistency of the stools. So one thing you can do if you've been concerned about constipation for yourself or for someone else is keep a log for at least a week or two so that you're able to tell your doctor this is how often the bowel movements seem to happen, these are the associated symptoms such as straining, hard stool, some of the other things we mentioned, and that'll be really useful to them. It's also quite important for the clinician to ask about red flags that might indicate something more serious. Now, most constipation in older adults is what I think of as, you know, sort of garden variety due to a combination of, you know, medications and maybe uh, slower transit, maybe insufficient fiber and some other things. But in a minority of people, the constipation can be due to something more serious. And so the red flags that your clinician should ask about would include blood in the stool. So this could be red blood mixed in or, or spots of blood, or it could be black and tarry in appearance, which usually means it's blood that has come from higher up in the digestive tract and has had a chance to be digested a bit. Because when blood is digested in your bowel and if you bleed in your stomach, then your blood will become digested in your bowel. As it makes its way out, it turns black. Another red flag symptom would be weight loss, generally more than... Um, you know, five or 10 pounds unintended within the past few weeks or few months. And then another uh, red flag would just be if the symptoms are, are new and getting worse. That would be concerning too. After that, the next steps of the evaluation really depend on the person's medical history and particular sort of set of symptoms. It's generally reasonable for health providers to check for these common causes, which would be medication side effects, low intake of dietary fiber, dehydration or chronic low fluid intake, and then some common causes of pain with bowel movements, which would include hemorrhoids. Now, whether or not the healthcare provider recommends further evaluation for mechanical obstruction, so for a tumor or something, you know, actually physically blocking the, uh, the bowels, well, depends on what they see on physical exam. And it is generally recommended, unless the patient refuses or unless there's really not time, it is generally recommended that the clinician do a rectal exam and take a look, both to see if they see any signs of hemorrhoids, but also to sort of um, uh, put a finger in and feel around and make sure there's nothing obviously, um, obviously blocking. Also, at the time when they do that exam, they'll ask the person to bear down and they'll get a sense of whether the muscles seem to be working as expected. From there, unless a red flag turned up or something obviously amiss with the person's muscles down below was clear, the American Society for Gastroenterology recommends that clinicians move on to a trial of uh, lifestyle changes and over-the-counter laxatives. Now, it is possible to do more in-depth evaluations, either for pelvic floor dysfunction, you can actually get a sort of whole evaluation of how in more depth of how things are coordinated down there. 
or for slower transit. But after uh, reviewing the evidence, the American Society for Gastroenterology in a 2013 review ended up recommending that clinicians evaluate for these types of dysfunctions only in people or mainly in people whose constipation didn't improve with lifestyle changes and over-the-counter laxatives first. So that's basically considered a kind of like second-level evaluation that you consider if the first round of what we would call conservative treatment, lifestyle changes and over-the-counter laxatives, if that doesn't work, that's when you would then move on to something more in-depth. And then they said that diagnostic colonoscopy should just be for those people who either have alarm symptoms, blood in the stool, weight loss you know, a lot of pain, quickly worsening symptoms, or potentially for those who are already overdue for routine colon cancer screening. Moving on to treatments, the first round of treatment. So as I mentioned, in most older people, there are no red flags or a serious concern for mechanical obstruction. Again, I call this kind of garden variety constipation. It's most of what I come across in my practice. And in geriatrics, we usually use a stepwise approach, pretty similar to what's recommended by the American Society for Gastroenterology in their guidelines. So first, we identify and reduce constipating medications, if at all possible. And then we talk to people a little bit about what they're eating and drinking. And we try to increase dietary fiber intake and fluid intake if indicated. Now, I'm going to reiterate this towards the end, but one of our favorite tools to use is prunes. So prunes are almost like a punchline for older people, but actually they really are effective in uh, addressing constipation symptoms. And that's because they contain two things that are really useful. One is that they contain fiber and they're a good source of dietary fiber. But the other thing is that they also contain something called sorbitol, which is basically a non-absorbable type of sugar that draws water into the bowel through the process of osmosis. So I won't get into chemistry right now, but osmosis is that super interesting phenomenon where water is drawn into spaces where there are actually more particles for a variety of reasons. And uh, prunes have actually been studied in randomized trials. And in one randomized study published in 2011, they found that prunes were more effective than a fiber supplement similar to Metamucil for the treatment of constipation. So uh, if people aren't already eating some prunes, then uh, we would recommend that. And then you can also try to increase other forms of dietary fiber. It kind of depends a little bit on the person's digestion and what they like to eat. You want to increase it slowly. You don't want to give people too much bloating or discomfort. And especially if people are going to take an additional fiber supplement, similar to Metamucil, then we generally recommend that people uh, drink a lot of water and hydrate enough because if not, all that fiber can potentially get dried out in the colon and become very hard to move along. So this is part of why, you know, usually my first suggestion is not more Metamucil, it would be something like prunes. And that's again, just because a lot of um, older people, especially if they're over age 80, seem to move things along slowly for a variety of reasons, and may not be drinking as much as they otherwise should in part because sometimes they have concerns about controlling their bladder as well. If you want to learn more about just how fiber works in the bowel, I found a very interesting, it's super technical, but it's fascinating article on understanding the physics of different fibers in the gastrointestinal tract. And I'll post a link to that in the show notes. So coming back to our stepwise approach. So we identify and reduce constipating medications. We increase dietary fiber intake and fluid intake if indicated. The third thing we do is we encourage a regular toilet routine with time on the toilet after meals or physical activity. So this can help to just make sure that people sort of sit at regular times. You, the more you can get the body into a routine and also the more you can take advantage of the body usually has a reflex to move things down and out shortly after a meal. So taking advantage of that and sort of not missing that opportunity can be helpful. And then if those things do not do enough to resolve the symptoms, and again, our goal is usually to get people to a comfortable, easy to have bowel movement every uh, one or two days, ideally, then we move on to the next step, which is to use over-the-counter laxatives to establish and maintain regular bowel movements. So now before I get into more depth on the different types of over-the-counter laxatives, I want to address the laxative myth that um, 
that is a myth and you should know it's a myth. So the myth is that it's bad to use laxatives regularly for anything more than a week or two. And uh, people often have this concern because they've heard that this can be dangerous or risky. Now, it's true that medical experts used to worry that chronic use of laxatives would result in what they used to call a lazy bowel. You know, that the, that the bowel becomes sort of used to the laxative doing its work for it, and that your nerves might degenerate or your muscles, you know, become less effective. But the truth is that there's actually no scientific evidence to support this concern. And in fact, in their technical review covering constipation, the American Society for Gastroenterology notes that, quote, contrary to earlier studies, stimulant laxatives do not appear to damage the enteric nervous system. And the enteric nervous system is that whole system governing how your gut and bowels move. So even though it is often said that, you know, use caution with laxatives, they shouldn't be used indefinitely, the truth is that certainly in geriatrics, we have lots of older people who are taking them indefinitely, and also that no one has ever proven that it is particularly harmful or long-term damaging to the body to do so. So, of course, if you can make enough lifestyle changes so that you manage to have a comfortable, easy bowel movement uh, every one to two days and you don't need laxatives, that is wonderful. That is what would be ideal. But for a lot of people, it just doesn't seem to, to work out. And so then we do turn to laxatives. And I'm going to tell you now about uh, the ones that work and how they work. But I want you to know that it's okay to use them provided that you've had a reasonable first pass evaluation. And you should know that lifestyle changes and over-the-counter oral laxatives are the approaches endorsed as the first line of constipation therapy by the American Gastroenterology Society and by others. So now let's go into the -the over-the-counter laxatives because... um, just because they're over the counter doesn't mean that they should be used in any which way. It's actually like really useful to understand the basics of how each type works so that you can better work with your healthcare providers on figuring out the right kind of mix or regimen, as we put it, that might work out for you or for an older person who you're helping out. Basically, laxatives that are available over the counter can be classified as one of four types, and three of them work. And one of them seems to really not be better than placebo in um, studies, even though it's actually often been prescribed by doctors. So what are the ones that work? So the first category that I want to tell you about that works is a category called osmotic agents. The most common ones here in the United States are polyethylene glycol, brand name is Miralax, and then there's also sorbitol and lactulose. There are also magnesium-based laxatives, like uh, milk of magnesia, which also mostly works through this mechanism. And the mechanism is that they osmotically draw extra water into the stool, which keeps it softer and makes it easier to move through the bowel. These are definitely shown to be effective in studies. They've been studied for up to two years without showing ill effects. And polyethylene glycol, so that's brand name Miralax, in particular tends to be easier for people to tolerate and take. So it comes as a powder that you mix in with liquid, doesn't have a very strong flavor, whereas the other two, sorbitol lactulose, taste a bit sweet or sometimes very sweet, and that can be a little harder for people. So that's one type, and it has a pretty good track record and shown to be safe. And then there's another type of laxative, which is a stimulant agent. So this includes Senna, brand name Senecot, and also Bisacodyl, and the brand name there is Dulcolax. And Dulcolax is available both as uh, oral tablets and as a suppository. So um, these have a different mechanism of action from the osmotic agents, and these work by more directly stimulating the colon to kind of squeeze and keep things moving. These have also been shown to be effective in studies, and So it's important to realize that a laxative like Miralax has a different mechanism of action than a laxative like Senna. And so often what we'll do is we'll start with one type of laxative, and then we might add a second one that's from a different mechanism, because then they're both kind of like helping address the constipation in slightly different ways, whereas it tends to be a lot less useful and really I don't think there's really a good reason to do it. It's less useful to use two laxatives that are in the same class and mechanism of action. So that's why it's good for for you to know which ones. Now, Sana um, can be taken every day, 
and some people do, but it can also be used as needed if someone hasn't had a bowel movement for a few days. And in a little bit, I'll come back to this idea, but, but often what we end up doing is figuring out, well, what does somebody need to take every day or on a regular basis? So it might even be every other day to keep things moving along. And then we also want to have a quote rescue plan. So if for some reason they haven't had a bowel movement now for two days, what's the extra laxative or thing that you're going to do to help move that along before it turns into a full-on impaction. Miralax and the osmotic agents are uh, often used as a kind of daily regimen, and then Senna is sometimes added as a rescue agent. And now for a third class of over-the-counter laxative, these would be uh, what we call bulking agents and what you might know as, you know, fiber supplements to keep things regular. So this includes the soluble fiber supplements such as psyllium, brand name Metamucil, and something else called methylcellulose. The brand name is Citrusel. So these basically work by making the stool bigger. And provided that the stool doesn't get too dried out and stiff and hard, a bulkier stool can be easier for the colon to move along. You know, the colon has to have something to kind of push along. And so especially if somebody doesn't otherwise eat a lot of leafy greens or a lot of dietary fiber, then that kind of bulking agent uh, supplement laxative can, can be quite helpful. The bulking agents can also help uh, retain a little bit more moisture in the stool. But again, the person has to be able to drink enough water. So bulking agents have been shown to improve symptoms, but our sort of anecdotal experience in geriatrics is that for a lot of our frailer older patients, they seem to make things worse. And we think that's because some of those older adults may not be able to keep up with as much fluid as is ideal to manage that extra fiber. And they can kind of become impacted by the the extra fiber. So so we're always a little cautious in monitoring that. And, and if somebody tries a bulking supplement and things don't get better, that might be why. And importantly, if it seems that a major contributor to the person's constipation is medications, or you know they have slow transit because they have Parkinson's disease, or you know they've had diabetes for so long that it's affecting what we call the autonomic nervous system because they have Parkinson's disease or some other condition that has affected and slowed down their digestion, it seems that those people are the least likely to benefit from a bulking agent. So again, this is why it's good to have done that little bit of thinking at the beginning of what do we think are the main causes or contributors to the constipation? Because if you think there is a slow transit issue, then you may not want to start by trying the bulking agent and you may want to just go right to using an osmotic agent such as Miralax and maybe a little Senna. So if you want more details regarding the scientific evidence behind these three types of laxatives, there are lots of references and some additional information in the American Society of Gastroenterology's technical review on constipation. That's when they reviewed all the scientific literature, and I will link to that in the show notes. So those are the three types of over-the-counter laxative that work. So what doesn't work? Well, the one that's not really effective is the quote-unquote stool softener such as docusate sodium, better known in the United States under its brand name, which is Colace. So this does seem to create a little extra lubrication and slipperiness around the stool. And they have often been prescribed by doctors. And, you know, when I was a medical trainee, a medical student and a resident, I think all our patients in the hospital were prescribed some Colace because, you know, people tend to get stoppered up in the hospital, different routine, different food. And so, you know, we prescribed some Colace, but actually it seems that it probably wasn't uh, doing much. And the scientific evidence, as best we can tell, really isn't there. Now, because this type of laxative is so commonly prescribed, and it's not expensive, but if you prescribe it to millions of people, it does start adding up to, to something. Because it's so commonly prescribed, the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies in Health completed a comprehensive review in 2014, because I guess they're paying for it to be prescribed to lots of people there in Canada. And their conclusion was that this appears to be no more effective than placebo for increasing stool frequency or softening the stool consistency. So I say, save your money, save your time. Don't bother buying it or taking it. And if your health provider suggests it, then think about politely speaking up and saying that you've heard that the scientific evidence is that um, the other three types of commonly available over-the-counter laxative are more effective. Because uh, laxatives do work, they're often appropriate to use, but you need to be using one of the types that has been shown to, to work. 
So very briefly, what about prescription strength laxatives? So in the past several years, a couple newer laxatives have become available. They're available by prescription only, and they include um, medications such as lubiprostone. The brand name is Amatiza, and linaclotide. The brand name is Linzess. They have a little bit different mechanism of action. They could be an option for those who remain constipated despite implementing lifestyle changes and correctly uh, using over-the-counter laxatives. But here's the thing. What you should know is that although those newer laxatives have been shown to be more effective than placebo in research, they have actually not really been shown to be more effective than the older, cheaper laxatives that we've been using for a long time. So... They're newer, they have a more limited uh, safety record, they're more expensive. So probably they should mainly be used after an older person has had a careful evaluation. And, and potentially after a person, you know, if a person doesn't get better with the lifestyle changes and the over-the-counter laxatives, what the American Society for Gastroenterology says is that they should have the next level of evaluation for pelvic floor disorders and possibly for slower transit. And if they do have signs of pelvic floor disorders, the, the known effective treatment is actually biofeedback, which helps retrain your muscles and nerves rather than one of these newer medications. So just something to keep in mind if you're taking or considering those newer medications for constipation. And then I don't consider it a laxative, but since it is a potential treatment when constipation comes up, a brief word about enemas. We would mostly recommend using them not as, as maintenance, but kind of uh, as rescue. If someone hasn't had a bowel movement for a few days and you're uh, trying to prevent or maybe treat early impaction. And the main thing you should know is that the most commonly available form, which is a saline enema, Fleet is a common brand name, that they have been associated with some serious electrolyte disturbances in some older adults or even occasionally kidney damage. So the FDA issued a warning in 2014 urging caution when saline enemas are used in older adults. And what is considered uh, safest would be actually a warm water, um, a warm tap water enema, or possibly a mineral oil enema. And again, if, if an older person is needing enemas often, that's probably a sign that their uh, maintenance bowel regimen needs to be adjusted. So to summarize treating garden variety constipation, Again, my basic approach is after we've tried to identify and reduce constipating medications, especially anticholinergic medications, then I start by recommending prunes and encouraging more fiber-rich foods. Now, if you take prunes to prevent or manage constipation, you do need to take at least a handful once or twice a day. I saw a patient recently to whom I had recommended prunes and found out that the family was providing one prune every morning. And that is not enough. So it uh, really needs to be a handful, probably like eight to 10 once or twice a day to have an effect. But that can be effective, that along with just some general dietary changes. And then uh, the next step that we often try would be to add a daily osmotic um, laxative because they tend to be well tolerated. So it'd be something like polyethylene glycol, brand name Miralax, a spoonful mixed with water uh, every morning. And then if we're still not getting bowel movements that are as sort of soft or comfortable or as often as we want, then we might try adding a little senna, one tablet every night or every other night, and then that can be increased a little bit if uh, necessary. We do sometimes try adding a fiber bulking agent such as Metamucil, but again, especially when people are older and frailer, we find in geriatrics that, that they tend to get stoppered up. It does usually take a little trial and error to figure out the right approach for each person. So I, I want you to realize this. It's going to take some trial and error. People sometimes, I think, come into the clinic and assume that we as doctors have x-ray vision. We can look at them and just know what is the right combination to put them on, but we don't. Every person is an individual. I mean, we do know what tends to work better and less well. And, and as I was explaining, there's not really any... There's not really any good reason to take two types of over-the-counter laxative that are in the same class. There's not really a good reason to take two osmotic agents or, you know, two stimulant agents. But otherwise, you know, you have to sort of um, mix a little bit and go a little bit up and down with the various over-the-counter laxatives until you find um, some kind of regimen that, that seems to keep the person regular enough 
And then you want to make provisions for a little sort of like extra rescue if for some reason an older person goes for a few days without a bowel movement because what's really important is to avoid impaction. And then along with all this, we also try to make sure that the older person gets enough physical activity and we try to encourage a routine of um, sitting on the toilet after meals. So I'll finish now with, you know, the key take-home points. Here's what I'm hoping you'll take away from this episode and the related article. So first and foremost, you should know that constipation is common, but it shouldn't be considered a normal part of aging. It deserves to be evaluated and managed by your healthcare providers. So ask for help if you've noticed any difficulties having a comfortable bowel movement every one to two days. And try to bring in a log of how often the movements are happening and what is uh, the consistency of the stool and the related symptoms, because that'll be really helpful to your providers. And you want to continue doing that log as you uh, work with your healthcare provider to make adaptations to your diet, to your fiber intake, and um, to using any over-the-counter laxatives if that's the route you go. So second key point, if an older person with Alzheimer's or another dementia is acting out, consider the possibility of constipation. So you can ask them, they may not remember, so you might have to watch what they're doing for a few days or even a week or two. So third key point, be sure to speak up if you've noticed any alarm symptoms. That's a sign that you should contact your health provider, bring it up right away, or bring it up if you're asked about bowel movements. The main ones to look out for are red blood in the stool, black tarry stools, unintended weight loss, or sort of uh, either constipation symptoms or other belly symptoms that are getting worse over time. Fourth key point, the initial evaluation of constipation should include, you know, a review and summarizing of the concerning symptoms, um, a conversation about diet, fiber, and fluid intake, and then very important, checking for medications that cause or aggravate constipation especially anticholinergics, but don't forget to think about uh, calcium supplements, iron supplements, opiate painkillers, and maybe also diuretics. And then, I mean, it's uncomfortable. Not everybody likes to, to do it, but a rectal exam at least once can be quite helpful. So fifth key point, assuming it looks like sort of fairly benign garden variety constipation in an older person, the recommended approach to this recommended by the American Society for Gastroenterology is to start with lifestyle changes, deprescribing constipating medications, and using over-the-counter laxatives. And that can be done before you pursue a more elaborate evaluation for pelvic floor dysfunction or slow transit. So that's really where they recommend that you start, and I would recommend that too. The lifestyle changes to consider include avoiding mild dehydration, eating fiber-rich foods, getting enough physical activities, and encouraging a regular toilet routine. Definitely try to de-prescribe anticholinergics and other constipating medications when possible. And then consider daily prunes. They're effective as a quote-unquote natural laxative because they do contain soluble fiber and also they exert an osmotic laxative effect. Six key point. It is often okay to use over-the-counter oral laxatives daily or regularly. Many older adults end up needing these, so they're either not able to make all the dietary changes that we recommend, because it can be hard to change what you eat, and you know there's a cost and burden to that as well, or they make the dietary changes and they're still experiencing symptoms of constipation. So um, do not do not be too worried if uh, your healthcare provider suggests a daily laxative. It's not, you know, a sign of, of bad medicine. There's no credible evidence that it's harmful to use over-the-counter oral laxatives long-term. Seventh key point, keep in mind that the three types of over-the-counter laxative that have proven efficacy are the bulk-forming fiber supplements, the osmotic laxatives such as polyethylene glycol, brand name Miralax, and stimulant laxatives such as Senna. It does often take some trial and error to find the right regimen for a person. Eighth key point, stool softeners such as docusate sodium, brand name colonase, do not appear to be effective according to research. So probably not worth taking. You'll probably get better uh, results by using the other types of over-the-counter oral laxative. Uh, ninth key point, think about having both a bowel maintenance plan, sometimes we call it a sort of uh, 
bowel regimen, and also a rescue plan, which means a plan for which additional laxatives you might take on an as-needed basis if a person hasn't had a bowel movement for a few days. Because again, the goal is to avoid fecal impaction. And also if you find that you know you or the person you're helping out often needs to use their quote rescue laxatives, then you need to adjust the regular regimen. People, people sometimes think, oh, I'll just wait until I'm seeming constipated and then I'll take extra laxative. But, but then you're, you're, you're kind of behind. And what you want to do is, is get ahead of the constipation and, and not have it come up very often. So for most people, that means a uh, maintenance plan and then the rescue plan should just be occasionally used. And then 10th key point, as I mentioned, be prepared to do some trial and error to figure out the best way to manage this for a particular person. So keep track, keep a log, keep track of the movements and the related symptoms and the consistency of the poops. Keep track of um, maybe less what you're eating, but definitely keep track of what laxatives uh, you are taking and when you use the rescue laxatives. And this will enable your clinicians to have the information that they need to further advise you on what to try next and how to further adjust your laxatives. So I hope that you now feel better equipped to address this important issue for yourself or for, for somebody else, because this is just a frequent cause of discomfort. And I would like for fewer people to be uncomfortable and certainly for fewer people to experience impactions. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.